Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number eight. And what we're going to be doing today is finishing off the uh, information that's contained in the chapter on encumbrances. What I'd like to do uh, is to quickly uh, just talk a little bit about what we discussed the last time. Uh, probably spend the first few minutes talking about that maybe emphasizing a few more points, and then we'll go ahead and finish off the rest of the information that happens to be in that chapter. Uh, the first thing that I wanted to mention to you is that remembering encumbrances is something that is preventing you from doing something with the property that you currently own, such as uh, so, uh, when you get a loan on a piece of property to buy the property or to refinance it or to maybe make some form of a home improvement, that the bank will turn around and say, you cannot sell that house until you pay us off. That would be an encumbrance. In other words, you just couldn't freely sell it. Uh, an encumbrance would also be where maybe you owe some money on the property because you've had some kind of a, a mechanic or, say, a carpenter or an electrician or somebody like that doing work on the property, and they've turned around and maybe you got into a dispute, you owe them some money, you're not going to pay them. You have an argument, and they file something called a mechanics lien. That prevents you from selling the property. So anyway, we talked about that kind of encumbrance, uh, which we commonly refer to as a monetary type of encumbrance. And then where we left off the last time, we started talking about something called physical encumbrances. These are things that you can actually physically go out there and find them on the property and say, you know, I cannot use that portion of the property because... Pacific Gas and electric, uh, electric is using that to put a transformer on the property. So anyway, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be moving back and forth as usual between just talking to you directly and the old document camera over here. For the students in the class, will be it'll be the things that are on the uh, our old friendly plasma screen here. So I'm going to move over here and we'll first talk a little bit of review the stuff that had to do with the uh, liens, if you will, of the money type. And we talked about the fact that there were four types of four categories of liens or money type things against a property. The first one was something called deeds of trust or mortgages. And if you remember correctly, what we talked about with those was the fact that whenever you go out, and by the way, this is a voluntary type of a lien. In other words, you agree to, to this. So when you go to the bank and you get ready to borrow the money from the bank, the bank says, okay, I will lend you the money to buy the house. I will lend you the money to fix it up or maybe even let you borrow some money that you can go and you know buy a new car. But what I want to do is I have, have to have something that you pledge. So in case you don't make payments, I can turn around and sell that and get my money back. And that is where you actually sign something called the deed of trust if you're in California, and that gets recorded against the property. And it says that, hey, listen, you know, Pat borrowed the money. He borrowed it from the bank. And uh, in the event that the bank, uh, he doesn't pay the bank, the bank can turn around and sell the house. So, but I have voluntarily agreed to that. Okay, So we talked about that kind of, uh, of uh, voluntary agreement. Remember, we talked about trust deeds or sometimes referred to as deeds of trust. And we also sometimes would refer to them as mortgages. We don't really use mortgages here in the state of California, but a lot of times when we talk about borrowing money, we talk about going to the mortgage company or getting a mortgage or getting a second mortgage or paying the mortgage off, okay? So anyway, 
That's a voluntary thing you do. The second thing that you may find yourself involved with is a mechanics lien. And a mechanics lien law is extremely tough in in California, as we talked about the last time. The point of that is to protect those people that are providing services to you, such as carpenters, electricians, contractors, painters, whoever does something on your property with their hands, if you will. The idea is is that if you enter into a contract with them, there's an understanding that after they perform that contract, you're going to go ahead and pay them some money. If you do not pay them that money or you get into a dispute, what will happen is the mechanic has the right to turn around and file a lien against your property, which sort of what we call clouds the property. And what it does is if somebody wants to buy it, what they're going to do when they do a title search, they're going to see that there's this mechanics lien. They'll say, you know what, I'll buy the property, but first you need to pay this guy off. I don't want to buy the property and find out later on that now I've got to pay, pay for the roof that you had contracted six months before you sold the house. I don't want to do that. You take care of those obligations you have. You can also have a mechanics lien for not only services, but for products or supplies you have. So, for example, if you were doing something like uh, uh, installing a brand-new fence on your property and you had gone down to the local building supply and you had contracted with them to uh, buy the fencing materials, they delivered it to your site, you put the fences up, and then you didn't pay them, they could file a mechanics lien. So very, very important that you think that's involuntary, by the way. That's something that's a result of you having a dispute with them or you not making payments And they say, if you're not going to pay me, I'll file this lien. So it's involuntary. The next kind of lien we talked about were judgments and attachments. A judgment is the result of uh, where you've gone to court. Either somebody has taken you to court because sued you or you have sued somebody else, whatever happens. And as a result of that, there's a judgment or the judge makes a decision. And says, you know what? I'm going, you know, you know, you're wrong. You should have paid that guy. And now what we're going to do is, is, is we're going to record a judgment against the property that you have to take and pay that person off. If you don't pay them off, then they have the right to turn around and force the property to be sold to pay their, what you owe them. Okay. And attachments are sort of the same, not the same type of a thing, but it's a way that you can attach property for something that you possibly owe against uh, for, uh, a bill, for example, that you owe as it would be an attachment against the property. The last thing that we talked about the last time was two types of, uh, we talked about tax liens and we talked about special assessments. And tax liens, as far as you, if you are a, uh, a private property owner and you own a house or any kind of property at all, normally, in the county where it's located, you're going to have to pay something called property taxes. And those property taxes are normally are going to be assessed or be required to be paid once a year. You normally pay them in two installments, and uh, you'll have a first installment and a second installment. Those property taxes are utilized for doing things such as providing police, maybe, in the area, uh, fire department, uh you know, maintaining the roads. There might be a lot of different reasons, or, or and school districts would be another one paying uh, for schools. That's what their property taxes are used for, okay? 
And as a sidelight in, in California now, as a result, back, uh, as a result of, a, of a proposition that was passed, a very famous proposition back in the uh, 70s, I think it was in the 70s, called Proposition 13, all property taxes, the initial baseline is, is assessed or reassessed when the property gets sold, and that assessment is 1% of the sales price of the house so or property. So, for example, if you buy a, land, a piece of land and it's $100,000, then you're going to pay $1,000 a year or 1% of the $100,000 or the $100,000 sales price in property taxes. If it's $200,000, it'll be $2,000, $300,000, $3,000, so on and so forth. And we'll talk more about that when we uh, get to the property tax area uh, chapter or we're dealing with taxes in general. The other one is something called special assessments. And special assessments are where the property owners, for example, in the area would decide that they would want to have some kind of an amenity uh, or maybe have some kind of a need that they have to have fulfilled and what ends up happening is when they go to the county, the county says, that sounds like a great idea, but we don't have any money to pay for that. And so what ends up happening is that there's a district that's created. That district then will turn around and raise money to put in whatever those improvements happen to be, such as street lighting or roads or curbs or gutters or whatever it happens to be. By raising funds, by forming this district, selling the bonds to investors, when I say investors, they can be like uh, large stock market types of investors, individuals. They can be companies. They could be uh, pension plans, profit-sharing plans, insurance companies, whatever. They buy these bonds, which is where you get your money from. You go ahead and you do your construction or put in whatever the improvement happens to be, and then each property owner has a certain amount of assessment that they pay on a normal monthly basis. So we talked about that. I think at the same time, I also ha may have mentioned that in certain areas, you'll hear a term called Melarus, which is a, uh, you see that a lot in new homes now, and the whole purpose of that is that, uh, again, the developer, it's normally the developer, when they get ready to put the roads and the streets and the curbs and the gutters in for the development project, they need to raise some money. And so consequently, uh, they do that through the issue of bonds, and then the people that buy, for example, a brand-new house in the area would actually pay not only their property taxes but also pay a monthly payment in addition to that or included with their tax bill, which would be called Melarus. And that would be used to retire that bond or pay, pay interest uh, on that bond. Okay, so we talked about that. Now, these were all money types of, of encumbrances, money types. So, for example, if you don't pay off the, the loan on the house, probably somebody's not going to sell it to you unless they assume it or you pay it off. A mechanics lien, people are not going to buy the property or lend money to you unless if, if, if you currently already owe money to somebody else. What that means is, hey, in the event of a foreclosure, they're going to get paid before the person that's now lending you the money is. So they're put in a poor position. Same thing with judgments and attachments. Again, they show up, and uh, people that are going to get ready to buy the property are going to want those taken care of first. And finally, property taxes. Property taxes are going to be something that's going to be prorated when you get ready to buy the house. If the seller has already paid a certain amount of the property taxes for the year, uh, and some of those months happen to be where you're going to be moving in and living, there'll be a proration in the escrow. 
uh, special assessments, that would be something that you would also uh, would make the client aware of and that they would have to take over when they bought the house or agree or understand that they have to take that over when they buy the house. So anyway, that has to do with money, has to do with liens, and uh, that's the first part. The second thing that we discussed or started to go into on the discussion, and let me see if I can find the uh, particular um, page, was physical encumbrances. Those were monetary, okay, money. In other words, to fix those things, you're going to get your checkbook out and pay somebody, or your the seller is going to pay somebody. These are mon these are physical encumbrances, which are different. These are stopping you from possibly using some portion of your property either all the time or some of the time or whatever. Uh, by the way, is a little short sidelight here that I want to mention to you is people will say to me, well, how do I even know that these exist on a property when I get ready to buy it? And I'll just give you a little idea how that works. Whenever a buyer initially decides that they want to purchase a piece of property, they will, through their real estate agent, make out something called a purchase offer. In that purchase offer is going to be all sorts of things, such as uh, I'm offering to buy the property for $300,000. I plan on getting a brand new loan. I want to pay off the existing loan would be some of those terms. They may say in that purchase offer, uh, for example, I would like to have an appraiser appraise the property. I want to have a termite inspection. I want to have a pool inspection. Uh, and all those inspections, I mean, the transaction's not going to go any further forward. And if those inspections show something that's a really big problem, that, uh, you know, the buyer may say, you know what, I don't want that house. I didn't realize it was infested with termites or I didn't want, I don't want that house because I thought it was worth 300000 only to find out the appraiser says it's only worth 250. So those are all kind of things we call contingencies when we get ready to buy a house. One of the contingencies that you're going to see in that purchase offer is something called a title report. And what that essentially means is that once the offer is made on the house and you go back and forth and you negotiate, maybe there's an offer and a counteroffer and another offer and a counteroffer, and there's finally something called an acceptance where they accept it. And you're, they then deposit the check either with the broker or with the title insurance company. There's an escrow opened. As soon as that escrow is opened, the escrow officer will call their title company or title officer and open up what's called a request for a title report. What that means is that that title officer is going to take that property and they're going to look through all of the recorded documents. They're going to go back and establish, for example, who really owns the property? How do they hold title? Uh, uh, what's the legal description of the property? They're going to list that. They're going to list things such as what is the status of the taxes, the property taxes? Are there any special assessments? They're going to list on there things like easements. If PG&E or SMUD or some utility company has an easement, they're going to list those. They're also going to list... Um, any deeds of trust, any mortgages that you owe. Okay, so if you have a first deed of trust to Bank of America or Wells Fargo or a second or an equity line of credit, that's going to be listed. They'll also list anything like any mechanics liens, any judgments. If you have IRS liens, that's all going to be in this report. 
That report typically will come out of the title office, usually about three to four days, maybe sometimes a little bit longer, maybe a little bit shorter, after you uh, the escrow is open. When you look at that contract, one of the things that it says is that the buyer has the right to read that report and to agree to what's listed in that report. And if they agree, then the transaction continues and moves forward. If there's some glaring big problem in there, then you normally have two choices. Either the buyer can turn around and walk away and say, you know what, I did not realize that there was an easement across the backyard because I'm going to put a pool in there. I didn't know that there was a water line there. And, and that I would probably have to pay the water company to move the line. I didn't know that, so I don't want to buy the house, okay? Or that may be something like, hey, you know what? I didn't realize that there was an IRS lien. Now, that might be something that the owner of the house can turn around and pay off or clear, or it might be just a matter of something where there was never any documents after they paid it to clear it off. But that, that title report, if you will, or preliminary title report, or sometimes called preliminary report, is something that has to be reviewed by the buyer, reviewed by the seller, reviewed by both brokers, and then the buyer has to sign off that they've read and understand and agree to it. And essentially what that report is really doing is the title insurance company is saying we, whoever the name of the title company is, such as Financial Title, Chicago Title, First American Title, are hereby willing to insure the property subject to all of those conditions that we have found or things we have found in the records that uh, could be a defect to the title, okay? And that's essentially what they're saying. And, and, and as a result of that, some of the, um, you know, you, the owner of the property may have to do things such as maybe go back and uh, ask the bank, you know, maybe they paid off a loan, and they have to say to the bank, you know what, I need to have a deed of reconveyance to clear that off the records. Or maybe they paid a ju they paid off a lien, a mechanic's lien, and the mechanic never never recorded anything to satisfy that judgment, okay? So, again, those are things that may be taken care of during the escrow process. So I want to let you know when this stuff shows up because it's not a mystery. It just shows up as part of the transaction. So, anyway, going back, when we're talking about physical, there are three basic categories. There's first something called an easement, second thing called building restrictions and zoning, and the third thing is called encroachments, and we're going to talk about each one separately. Now, I'm, I'll read a little definition here of it, and, uh, and then we'll go back into it. It says an easement, let's get this straight on the camera here. It says an easement is the right to use another's land. It is an interest, but it is not an estate. An easement is not is a non-monetary encumbrance, but not a lien. Now, let me explain what all that stuff means. It says an easement is a right to use another's land. It is not an interest. It is not an interest. I'm sorry. It is an interest, but it is not an estate. What that basically means is this: is that easement. You can, for example, you may have an easement that's a driveway easement where you can cross another person's property to get to your property. You don't own their property. You don't have an estate in their property. You're not leasing it. You don't have a fee estate. You don't have a life estate. You just have a right to cross that property. That's all you have. You have an interest in it. And that's very, very important to keep in mind. Um, an easement is, is also, it's a non-monetary encumbrance. It's a physical. It's not a monetary 
and it's not and it's not a lien. It's not something that's like a lien on the property. It's either there or it's not there. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, okay. So uh, I'm going to read this little bit here down below. It says, an easement is an interest in land owned by another person consisting in the right to use or control the land or an area above it, meaning like a driveway, okay, or it might be like uh, power lines or telephone lines above the property or, or a driveway or a walkway or whatever, or below it. So it might be the right to go underneath the property to extract some kind of minerals, for example. Uh, it's for specific limited use. So in other words, it, it's designed for one thing. In other words, the, the utility company that has a transformer on the property can use it for that purpose, but it cannot decide that they're going to go out there and then build something else completely different. It's, for example, it might be a utility easement for a transformer or a utility easement for a, um, for a water line or something like that. The right to enter is called ingress, and the right to ex uh, exit is called egress, is included in the definition of the right, and you can uh, is the right to profit from the easement, such as the right to take minerals and oil and gas. Okay, So we want to make sure that we uh, understand this. This is very important. Um, the uh, diagram that I think is probably hits home here is uh, this diagram which I think we, uh, we were somewhere around this when we left off the last time. This is a diagram of a piece of property where this person back here is called property owner A. They're the one that needs the easement. In other words, they have to take their car, go down this road, and get to their property. If they don't have the right to cross this other person's property here, then they would have, never have any way of getting in. They would be what we call landlocked. In other words, they would be locked out by the land that borders between the road and their property. So what they do is they have this easement or this driveway here to do this. This is called the dominant tenement, and this is called the subservient tenement. This guy serves that guy is what we're talking about. Okay, So that's, I think, where we pretty much were the last time. Uh, how do we create these easements? There are several different ways. Okay. Uh, the three basic ways we can do it is we can do it in writing. So, for example, means in writing, when I maybe sell that property to somebody else in that deed, I may actually, for example, I may sell somebody, like that piece of land as an example. That's a good example. I may have started out by maybe owning this entire piece of property. The whole thing is one unit. I decided to maybe split this property, and maybe I liked the back part of it. I could put in writing when I sell this piece of land right here to this person, I could put in writing that I reserve the right or I have an easement across their property to my property. In other words, I would put that in writing in the deed. Okay, So that's one way that I can do that. Uh, the second thing is, you can have an easement that's implied. Implied means basically the fact that it's understood that you could not use the property, if you will, without having that easement. A good example would be uh, maybe you buy the property and it's, it's, it's not necessarily in writing, but it's clearly that you would not be able to get in and out of your house if you didn't have that easement. So it's understood or it's implied that that easement comes along with that property. 
The third thing is called long use or prescription. And so what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about what this long use or prescription means. Prescription is, um, and I'm going to read this because some of you may or may not have heard of this. It's uh, long use prescription, okay, Prescription is an easement to continue using land by virtue of having used it for a long period of time. So in other words, if you've been using it for a long period of time and you continue to use it, then you should be able to have that easement. In order to have that easement, there's several things that you must meet. Number one, possession you have to have possession for five continuous years can create prescription easement as long as the use is, number one, open and notorious. Excuse me. What that basically means is that I, I, it's obvious that anybody that lives in the area could say that Pat has been crossing that land. I see him do it during the day. I see him doing it at night. Uh, he's, he uses it every day for a driveway or he uses it every day for a walkway. It's obvious. You know, it's completely obvious. Okay. The second thing is, is that I do it for un, uninterrupted for five years in a row. So, for example, if I do it for a year and then I don't use it, and then I go ahead back and use it again for another two or three years, I've had a break. It has to be for five consecutive years. The third thing, it has to be under a claim or a right or color of title. In other words, I have to have where I believe I have a need to do that. In other words, I just can't go down to the, the neighbor down the street and say, you know what, I'm just going to cross your property because I think that's an easier way for me to get someplace. You know, it has to be under some kind of a claim like, uh, in other words, I need to cross that property in order to get to my house. Or it should be, I should have had that right when I bought the house in the first place. Finally, it has to be hostile without permission of the owner. And the reason why they want to put this in there is that it may possibly be where people live next door to each other or maybe the guy that lives in the back, maybe, you know, behind you, maybe for years and years you have, uh, you have let him use it. He's had your permission to use that property. If it hasn't been hostile, in other words, if it's, if it's, if he's had your permission, then this, none of this applies. As an example, I may very well uh, say even have an agreement or even have where uh, I may even agree to some form of compensation. I may say to the person that has the lot that's out front, say to something, you know, like it would be easier for me to be able to get in my house if I was able to cross your property right about here. But in order to do that, what I'll, I'll agree to do is I'll mow your lawn every week. Okay. In other words, where we have an agreement, there's no hostile. In other words, we've met all the other things. We've done it. We've done it, for example, open and notorious. People could know about it. We've had interrupted use for five years. We've done it under possibly where we think we may have some kind of a claim. But the last thing is we have had the person's permission. So consequently, we can't get it by prescription. That's what we're talking about. Okay, the next thing they talk about here is talking about uh, something like transfer of the easement. Um, the concept is is that when you transfer the property, the easement goes along with it. Okay, when you transfer it, it goes along with it. So, for example, they say easements are transferred automatically if they are easements appurtenant. Easements appurtenant means that it runs. Let me zoom this out a little bit here so we can see it. 
Easements are pertinent means that it runs with the land. Easements and gross can be transferred only by express agreement, providing the easement is not made to specific individual. And an easement, an easement should be recorded, which is true. You should always record that because, you know, you if somebody, you know, if you're doing something verbally or even if you're doing it in writing and somebody loses the document, it can really cause a lot of problems. It's best to record these easements at the county recorder's office. If it is not recorded, and the purchase does not have acknowledge, acknowledge of the easement, then the easement may not be considered to have been transferred with the property. So I guess what I'm saying is, or what they're saying here is that if you go out and you take a look at a piece of property that you're listing for sale or that maybe you're helping a buyer buy the property and it becomes obvious that in order for them to gain access to their property, they have to cross somebody else's. They have, to, in other words, there's an easement there. Then what you want to do is you want to find out from the preliminary uh, report, preliminary title report, has there been something recorded? If it hasn't been recorded, why not? Um, you know, is there maybe something that was created, a document that had not been recorded? In other words, you want to make it really, really clear. You don't want to have where somebody sells, buys the property, and then finds out, well, no, you can't cross right there. You can't cross my property. I'm not going to allow that. So you want to be really aware of that. Okay. Um, termination of leasement, easements. Easements can be terminated in several different ways. First of all, if remember, an easement is a permission for you to go over somebody else's property, kind of. So if you merge the dominant and the servient tenement. Then what happens is is that 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 the the uh, the easement doesn't any longer exist. As an example, uh, I think it's this one right here. Okay, let me just move this out of the way here. If all of a sudden I, as the owner of this property here, decide to buy this person's property right here, if I decide to buy this person's property, then I own the whole piece of property. I no longer have to get permission from myself to cross my own property. In that particular case, the easement goes away. That's why we mean when we merge, merge the ownership. That's one of the reasons why the easement would go away. In fact, I may very well, if I bought this property and this easement existed beforehand, what I may do is when I get ready to sell it, I may actually decide to maybe ask a uh, land surveyor, a licensed engineer, to resurvey the property and actually split it and actually include in the legal description uh, all the way down like this so that this person buying the property actually does have, actually owns this. So that's very, very important. The second way that you can, uh, it can possibly be uh, eliminated is what they call excessive use. So, again, like we talked about the last time, the understanding here is that the person here understands that this person living back here is just going to be going back and forth to work. That's all they're going to be doing. They're going to go out in the morning, come back uh, at night, maybe a few more times. They're not going to be using it, uh, for example, as uh, uh, they're not going to be running a business out of here and having cars coming in and out of there all the time. So in other words, if there's excessive use, that could be another reason where they would say, hey, this is excessive. That was not the original intention of, of the right-of-way. We want to terminate it. 
The third way is by abandonment or non-use. So if you just eventually just say, I don't want to use this anymore, then that easement would, would go away. Okay? So it's very, very important that you would uh, understand that. Okay, the next thing that we want to talk about is, and let me see here, is building restrictions. Okay? Okay, this is another form of, if you will, encroachment. And we want to distinguish between these two types of building restrictions, both private and public. So let me talk a little bit about which one, uh, what they are. Public, public restrictions are things such as zoning. Zoning laws are laws that have been put into effect that control how certain types of property are used in certain geographical areas. For example, in the Sacramento area, if you look at something as I'll show you later on called the general plan, there's certain areas, and even if you think about it here in, in, in Sacramento, there are certain areas in Sacramento in which you go into that area and you expect that to have retail types of businesses. You'll go into another area where there's an expectation that's all residential homes, and by the way, the people that live there live in single-family homes. You'll go into another area where you'll say, you know what, this is an industrial complex. This is where we have manufacturing going on. There's train tracks going in there. There's businesses that build stuff and ship it out. Okay, So there's different types of areas that have been designated for certain types of uses for people to use their property. Also, so that's part of the zoning. So, for example, I may have zoning that will designate it as residential or residential and uh, two-family, like duplexes, or residential for apartment houses. Or I may have something else that will be de- designated as retail space, you know, and it will be for maybe small shops. Another place might be uh, designated as retail space but for large shopping centers. So that's what we're talking about. So if you go to the county, they actually have something called a zoning code. This zoning code will have all those designations, and on top of that, it will have all the restrictions listed. So, for example, it may say, uh, you know, any houses built in the area can't exceed two stories. They have to be at least 20 feet between the back of the house to, to where the property line is. The side, side yards have to be five feet wide. The house has to be set back from the street by 20 feet. Uh, those would be the kinds of restrictions that would be of a public or zoning type. The other kind of restriction you would have is what we call private property restrictions. These restrictions are put on initially, normally, by the developer, the real estate developer that develops the project, such as a subdivision. What they do is they sit down ahead of time, and they make out these public, what we call covenants, conditions, and restrictions. And that talks about how the property is supposed to be used, under what circumstances. And over the years, they've gotten to be very, very detailed-oriented. For example, uh, up where I, I, the example I always like to use, one of them is my son lived in a, a, in a uh, condo project down here on Howe Avenue called Woodside Condominiums couple of things you couldn't do when you lived in those condominiums is, number one, if your drapes that faced the outside that you could see from the outside all had to be white in color. They all had to look uniformly. Now, it didn't mean the drapes on the inside, but the part that faced the outside had to have a white backing. Second thing is you could never park a truck on the grounds. It didn't make any difference. It could be a brand-new spanking 
$50,000, beautiful-looking truck, and it could be parked next to an old beat-up Volkswagen, but the truck could not park on the grounds, but the old Volkswagen could. Uh, when you put a house out for sale, there were certain specific locations where the signs had to be located. Uh, up where I live, we have these covenants, conditions, and restrictions. And, for example, uh, I ha- I, and I'm not sure whether I mentioned this the last time, but, for example, uh, what color I paint my house. If I'm going to change or paint my house, I have to get the permission of the association to make sure I'm not violating those, those private property restrictions. The kind of roof I have on the house, it has to be a tiled roof. It can't be, a, you know, like a tar paper roof or a shing, you know, those old, uh, uh, asphalt shingles. We can't do that. Uh, you, uh, if you put your garbage out at Sunday night, the trash can has to be back in behind the gates Monday night. You can't park cars in the street overnight. All those things are restrictions that you can't do. If you violate any of those restrictions, then the homeowners association, who typically runs these these uh, enforces these covenants, conditions, restrictions, can actually give you something like a ticket. In other words, they'll give you a warning. They're saying we found out that you've been leaving your trash cans in the street uh, an extra day. If you continue to do that, we're going to fine you. Or that we have uh, our security people have observed that you have parked your car out on the street between such and such hours. And if you do that again, what's going to happen is we'll tow your car if you leave it out there again. These are restrictions. Now, some of you may say, why in the world would you ever want to have restrictions this tight? And the reason why is because if you really think about it, and all you have to do is drive through some of the neighborhoods that are in Sacramento and take a look at some of the areas where people will do things like leave trash cans laying out in the street for weeks. They'll put leaves piled out in the street. They'll have their cars out there. They'll probably, I've seen people that will actually put their uh, a car they're working on and park it right on the lawn. The house, they'll paint some you know, color that doesn't match anybody else's. In other words, you start having people that have property or whatever they do become eyesores to the community. And what happens is it has a dramatic effect on the value of the property. And all you really have to do, if you want to know, is just drive through the neighborhoods and go, you know, as you drive through and you take a look at it and you go, God, I don't really want to live here. Look at that. That, that guy's got that old car parked, parked on the lawn and the people across the street have got a, a pink house with purple polka dots. And, uh, you know, the roof over here looks like it's ready to fall off. I don't want to live here. So it has a dramatic effect on the value of the property. So what will happen is the homeowners associations will actually, people like myself will actually say, I want to live in an area where we have some restrictions so that my value of my property stays up. Very, very important. Now, one thing that always comes up, and I think your book uh, may or may not, I'm not sure whether it says this or not. Um, yeah, I think it's right in here. Is that what happens when you have a difference between the private property restrictions and the public property restrictions. So as an example, if the if the zoning department or zoning commission or or the uh, the uh, planning department who's maintaining these zoning uh, regulations turns around and says, you know, the side yards of your house between the side of your house and your fence line have to be five feet. If that's what they say. 
yet the homeowners association turns around and says, no, it's not five feet, it should be six feet, then what ends up happening is whoever is the more restrictive of the two is who you have to follow. So, for example, when I built my house a couple years ago, the zoning restrictions did not speak to the issue of how close certain types of trees could be to the fence. Uh, they, they didn't speak to that issue. They didn't care whether I put the tree right as close to the fence line as possible. The zoning department, zoning rules didn't care about that. But the homeowners association, through the covenants, conditions, and restrictions did. And what they did is they came out with a tape measure and they measured from the fence to the tree. And my tree was supposed to be five feet from the fence line. It was four feet, ten and a half inches. And guess what? They made me move that tree two and a half inches or an inch and a half. So you can have where the whoever is the most restrictive is the one that you have to follow. Very, very important. Zoning department, for example, may not talk about the color of your house. Private property restrictions would. Uh, zoning department may not talk about uh, leaving your trash can out at night, but the proper homeowners association or the, the uh, covenants, conditions, and restrictions would. So it's very important that you keep that in mind. Okay. All right. The next thing. Oh, the next thing that they talked about in here. I think if we go down here is an encroachments. And I'm, I want to make sure that I'm covering all of this because this is really important uh, stuff. Yes, it's the last encroachments are pretty much the last thing uh, that they're talking about in general here. And you may wonder, you know, before we get into this, you may very well wonder, you know, why in the world is a real estate agent or even a property owner, why do I even care about this stuff? Um as a real estate agent, you want to make sure that that you are thoroughly aware of and actually, you know, ask your client. If you think that maybe that it appears to you that uh, you go out to take a look at a house and you say, you know what, you know, I'm looking at a plat map. I'm looking at where I know the dimensions of the house. And it looks to me like the guy, the next door neighbor is crossing over this guy's property to get to, say, their garage in the back. You need to be asking the homeowner that you may be trying to sell their house or, or maybe your buyer is trying to buy it. You, you need to be talking to their agent and say, you know, does this person have a right of way that we don't know about? You know, is, is that a, does that exist? You know, or you may go out to take a look at a piece of property and you stand there and look at the dimensions and you go, wait a minute, that fence looks like it's like it's a little bit over on our property. You know, it's supposed to be the, the property is supposed to be, you know, like maybe. A hundred feet wide, but it looks to me like that fence is over on 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 the homeowner's property. Uh, you know what's going on, so you need to be aware of that to be asking those questions, and that may very well be something that you 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 want to find out now that needs to be corrected before your buyer buys the property or your seller sells it. Very very important because in the case of the seller, by the way which we haven't covered yet, the seller is supposed to disclose, is required by law to disclose all these defects that they have with the property, such as rights of way that may not be easily discoverable, uh, encroachments that may be on the property. They're required to spell all this out. And if they sell the house and don't disclose it and it's found out that they know, they can be sued. Okay, so you want to be aware of that. Now, an encroachment, and I'll read what the definition is. It says, as stated, an encroachment is the wrongful, unauthorized placement 
of improvements or permanent fixtures on a property by a non-owner of that property. And it says you must pursue the right to have the encroachment removed within three years or lose your right. If the someone encroaches on your property, he or she is limiting the use of your property. An example, they say if your neighbor builds a driveway over your property, it is considered an encroachment, which is a form of trespass. You have three years to sue your neighbor or have the encroachment removed. And often, this is so true down here, often things like fences. Fences, a lot of times, people will get out there and they'll get together with their neighbor and they will think, they'll try to figure out where they think the fence line is. And I'm here to tell you that you go out to a lot of properties and even if you take a metal detector out there trying to locate these pins that are in the ground, because that's what a surveyor does nowadays, they drive these, these steel pins in the ground, what will happen is you can find that and maybe somebody moved it or maybe uh, I've seen where uh, somebody's coming out to do landscaping or digging a trench and they just pick the pin out and throw it away or throw it at someplace else. Or maybe they pick it up and say, uh-oh, I made a mistake and they move it and nail it back in the ground again. So you can find out in some cases where your next door neighbor maybe put their fence on your property or you have their your fence on their property and it's not that difficult to do if you've ever laid out a fence line I mean you got to be pretty darn precise when you do it so it's not that difficult to do and I would venture to say you probably could go out there with a surveyor and find a lot of properties that are in Sacramento in fact probably all over the country where fences are on the wrong properties or encroaching on somebody else's so you need to be aware of that but anyway things like fences walls buildings may extend over the recognized boundary line the encroaching party may possibly gain legal title, meaning the person that actually put their thing on your property, they may gain legal title to the property through adverse possession uh, or legal use through an easement by prescription if there is a legal justification. If any, in any event, an encroachment may legally limit the use of your property. So again, this is something that you want to definitely find out if there's any kind of uh, easement or um, or anything, anything that looks like it's not out of character, it's not right. In fact, I would really tell you that one of the things, if you're going to list a property for sale and you're a good agent, you know, if you're a good agents will normally contact the title insurance company and get something called a plat map. And that map is the legally recorded map for the property. Most homeowners don't even know what you're talking about, but the title company will. And you want to get one that's really clear, that you can read all the numbers, because a lot of times properties will have sometimes angles or oddball feet, or it might be like 86 feet, 3.5 inches, or something like that. And what you'll want to do is make sure that's clear, and title companies will provide that through their, uh, through their customer service. Uh, in fact, they'll provide copies of things like the plat map, the grant deed, deed of trust, and a lot of other information. But you'll want to take that when you're listing the property for sale with the client and say, are these the dimensions? Uh, in fact, when I sold the property a couple years ago, I actually went out there and staked where the boundaries were to make sure that there was no dis, that everybody understood and we double-checked all the measurements. So it's really kind of important that you do that, especially if there's any kind of an idea that it, there might be an encroachment a wall that's been built that's on the you know either the other person's property 
or on your property, you need to make sure that you just don't want to, if you're an agent, you don't want to get yourself in a lot of trouble. It's easier to get, take that, take care of that up front, at least in my opinion. Um, the, one of the last things that they talk about in here, which is not really a judgment or a lien or anything, is something called homesteading. And homesteading, uh, when I mentioned this in another class, the person could pick out what the movie was. But anyway, homesteading, uh, really, most people think about homesteading in one of two ways. They either think about, uh, uh, you know, when we settled a lot of the land in the, in the United States, when we acquired land, what happened was, is one of the reasons where we hear homesteading is that uh, the United States government wanted to get people to move out and live in the western part of the United States. One of the incentives that they used for the people was to say, you know what, if you move out there and, uh, and claim a piece of property, in other words, they would say, you can come out here and pick your property out, and if you live on that property and raise crops or uh, you know, have a business or something like that, and you do it for a period of time, that becomes your property. In fact, uh, if you go down to Oklahoma, which is one of the places where you, know, you, you hear about this on a fairly regular basis, they used to have, like for example, uh, they would line up all these covered wagons, all these people on horseback. Usually around 12 o'clock, what would happen is they'd sit there and they'd, somebody would fire off a gun, and then what would happen is people would run out to property they already knew where it was existing, and they put a flag on it to identify this is my property. And uh, by the way, if you ever go to Oklahoma, you'll hear, hear the term Sooners, and you'll hear football teams, and you'll hear streets named after it. And what it was is all those people had jumped the gun. In other words, they took off to go run for their property before the gun was fired. But the point is, is that that's one way you hear of homesteading, uh, a way for people to settle or get property uh, free of charge if they just live on it and use it. Another way is where people talk about the fact that, listen, I'm going to homestead the property, and that way, in the event if I get sued, I'm protected. I can't lose it. Well, that's true to a certain extent, and it's really not true to a certain extent. And that's why I'm going to point out a couple things on here that I would recommend that you would look into or be aware of. By the way, homesteads are recorded, so it's a document that gets recorded at the county recorder's office saying that you actually have a homestead on the property. So what I'll do is I'll go ahead and read this, read through this a little bit. It says, although a homestead is not an encumbrance, it is appropriately discussed at this point, a homestead is a special provision of the California law that allows homeowners to protect their homes from forced sale to satisfy debts within certain limits. And when we talk about debts, that would be, for example, you owe somebody some kind of money and you, the judge has decided that you're going to have to pay and you want to protect that your home is not going to be sold to satisfy that judgment is what we're talking about. It says there are two types of homesteads. There's a head of household and there's a federal homestead act of 1862 whereby the government encouraged settlements and gave free land to those who made certain improvements. This is not discussed here. That's what I'm talking about when we talk about that kind of a homestead. That's where the one where I was explaining where we had the covered wagons lined up and people had a line, and at 12 o'clock we shot the gun and they went out and they staked out or homesteaded their property. So we're talking here not about that one, but about the other one, which is protecting your property. Uh, it, is a ba it is basic to our society that a homeowner should have the same protection against losing their home because of debts 
A homestead consists of the house and the adjoining dwellings, which may be like a barn or something, in which the homeowner resides. This can include condominiums, farm, life estates. A home a homestead cannot include unimproved land such as vacant lots or a residence under construction. And what they talk about here is how do you do this? It says the first $75,000 of a home's value may not be used to satisfy a judgment against the head of household. So there's certain requirements that you have to fulfill in order to to, um, to declare this homestead. And they go through what this is. It says the declaration of homestead is recorded document that protects a homeowner from foreclosure by certain judgment creditors. The, the, uh, this protects you for $75,000 of you are head of, head of the family, persons who are mentally or physically de- disabled over the age of 65 or 55 or older within specific low income are entitled to the protection for up to $150,000. Any resident who does not qualify under one of these conditions has a homestead valued at $50,000. If the equity exceeds the exemption, the home may be sold to satisfy the creditors, but not the exemption amount. So that means, that mean, uh, so anyway, that's just giving you some ideas of, of how that homestead would work and how it's implemented. Um, again, another thing that they put in here that I think is important is that a homestead does not protect a homeowner against foreclosure on a trustee mechanics lien or a lien file prior to the filing of the homestead. What they're trying to say here is this, that you are not going to um, get yourself in trouble and then decide to file a homestead. In other words, what you have to do is file the homestead before you get yourself in trouble. Uh, Also, too, it doesn't protect you in the event that you're trying to uh, get out of paying off a mortgage. Okay, uh, or a mechanics lien. So there's certain rules and regulations. And what it is is what you're trying to do in your own mind is keep straight and not kind of listen to where somebody is giving you some advice that may or may not be true. What it boils down to is that if you want to file a homestead or you are interested, what you need to do is you need to go get the law, read through this, follow the law, and, and, and make sure you follow everything that's there and know what you are actually protected from. Uh, very, very important not just to think, oh, well, I'm getting sued for so-and-so or I'm getting, uh, you know, I have a mechanics lien now because I decided not to pay the guy to fix the fence, so now I'm going to file a homestead. No, that's not going to work because, you know, it's kind of like you're trying to defraud the person that actually, find a way to defraud the person that you actually owe the money to is what we're talking about. You don't want to do that. Um, this is an example of what the homestead declaration looks like. It's not filled out, but it's an example of what that may look like. Again, it would have to be filled out, signed, notarized, and then recorded at the county recorder's office. Okay. Um, some of the things that you need to do if you are going to file for the homestead, uh, you have to have these statements. So you have to have a statement showing that you, the claimant, is the head of the household family. Okay, that's one of the statements that you have to have. The second thing is is that you have to have a statement 
that the claimant, which is you, that you actually reside on the premises. What that means is you can't go ahead and file a homestead on something like a, a rental piece of property. It has to be something you're physically living in. Number three, you have to have a description of the premises and an estimate of its cash value. Number four, you it further provides that the declaration of the homestead may need to contain a statement as to the character of the property, that no former declaration has been made, and that is within the limits of the prescribed law. Just so you know that. Finally, it just says here, how do you terminate this? You terminate it basically, one of the ways you terminate it is by actually just selling the property. If you sell the property, then the homestead goes away. And uh, and you may very well want to do that because you're going to sell the property or you're going to abandon it or declare and abandon it with the idea in mind that you're going to go ahead and now file a, now that you abandon that one, because remember, it has it can only be on a place in which you live. And what you want to do is you want to take and, and sell that house, get rid of that homestead, and then turn around and use the homestead again on the new house that you're buying. So, again, this is not that you're going to see an encumbrance or or any kind of bad stuff. It's just the fact that whenever you're getting these title reports and you're trying to sort through them and you see that somebody's recorded a homestead or some other document on there, it's important that you at least know what they are and understand what's going on. And what I would highly recommend is that when you get those title reports, uh, which are on every transaction, especially if you're going to finance something, all lenders want to have title insurance, is that you read it. And all of the title reps, the escrow officer or the title rep that represents that office, like the what we call the sales rep or the title officer, would be more than happy to sit down and go over that with you line item by line item by line item and explain exactly what every single solitary detail means. And if you as the agent receive this title report and it looks like there's things on it you don't quite understand or maybe you've never seen before or maybe things that your client didn't mention, you may want to talk to your client and then you may very well find yourself talking to your escrow officer uh, about you know what that problem is and then usually what they'll do is they'll get the title officer involved and that may involve maybe going back and pulling some documents that are, were recorded at the at the county recorder's office to see what the problem was uh it may be something that might be just something minor to correct such as uh when the bank when you paid off the when you paid off the bank what happened is they never recorded a deed of reconveyance so it might be a matter of getting a hold of that bank and uh, producing the note that you had showing that they said that you paid it off and turning around and getting them to record the deed of reconveyance. Or maybe you paid a mechanic off or you paid off somebody that de uh, delivered some materials to your property, but they never recorded that you satisfied that, that, that lien against the property. And you need to go back to them and get that taken care of. So there's, in a lot of cases, those things that will show up can be taken care of and cured if you, if you become proactive and look for that report. Don't wait until the last minute and the deal's getting ready to close to read the report. Look for that report right away. With that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and we will see you back here again for show number nine. Thanks again. Bye-bye.